Would you please join me as I pray? God, we come to this moment. The scriptures open, our hearts and our minds fixed on you. And my request in this moment is you, the speaking God, the one who has spoken worlds into existence, who has spoken in such a way that it has been preserved by the Spirit and is now available to us in this text. Would you give us focus and attention that is born up by the Holy Spirit. And as we receive this word, God, would you use it to put, to put steel in our spines, to help us to be a people of conviction, a people willing to stand with you and for you, no matter the context or the pressure or the struggle, that we would continue to learn what it looks like to flourish even far from home. God, would you train us to be these sorts of people? We're asking that you would use these moments towards that end, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We run a risk in coming to a text like this. The risk is allowing it to continue to be relegated to the place of Sunday school. You know, maybe you grew up watching the VeggieTales version, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I know this story. Um, we can almost treat it like a, like a child's plaything, but this text is aggressive, strong, adult in its content, and it is speaking about the realities of navigating in a pluralistic society, of navigating the pressures and the tension of living in a pluralistic society as a, as a people that are far from home and who have a commitment to the God of a distant land. We've been studying the book of Daniel together. We're calling it Flourishing Far From Home, laboring to embrace together our identity as exiles, strangers, and aliens, as the New Testament calls us, recognizing that we live for a city whose maker is God. We long for a land that we have not yet been to. And if we are embracing our biblical identity fully and leaning into it, we will feel the tension in our souls and in our context because we will realize we live in a time and a place and a land with cultural headwinds that don't blow in the same direction that we are headed. And we come to a text like this, and, and it's not a child's plaything. It is actually robust challenge and encouragement to be the sorts of men and women that do not conform to the pressures of a pluralistic society, but truly believe that our God delivers. And as we make sense of that together, I think it will speak pointedly and maybe at times uncomfortably into our own day and time. So towards that end, I want us to direct our attention back to the beginning of Daniel 3. We won't read every single verse of this chapter, but I do want us to, to study the whole of the chapter and understand the flow of what's going on. And we start by beginning to understand what do I mean by the pressure of a pluralistic society? Pluralistic pressure comes into focus in the first several verses of this chapter. So look back with me at them. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, who we've been introduced to in the last two chapters, made an image of gold 
whose height was 60 cubits, that is 90 feet, and its breadth 6 cubits, 9 feet wide. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon, a 90-foot statue of gold on the plains of Dura that calls to mind for the attentive reader the Tower of Babel, which would have been in in a nearby area, also a tower built to communicate similar things, as we will see. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now pay attention to how many times this text is going to make it clear that King Nebuchadnezzar had set this up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that... King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Repetition, don't miss this. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and language, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the people's nations and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And these first few verses, the the pressures of living in a pluralistic society come into sharp focus. We're introduced yet again to the realities of Babylon, and as I said, this this tower on the plains of Dura calls to mind the Tower of Babel, which we know in Genesis 11 was constructed by a group of people that said, let us gather together and let's build a great name for ourselves. Self-exaltation and national pride, this is going to be about us and what we can build. And now Babylon shows up again here in this text, and Babylon is gobbling up other nations, and King Nebuchadnezzar, in an attempt to gather all these people together with a singular vision, is setting up a statue in a sense to the, to the glories of Babylon itself and saying, I know that you all have your own private national gods, and now you find yourself enveloped into this Babylonian structure. And so the invitation is, yes, yes, you can have your own private god in your own home, but we together as a nation, we bend a knee in this way to this this understanding. This is what's going to make us Babylon. And by the end of the Bible, when you get to Revelation, we see that Babylon has kind of swelled beyond just a place and just a kingdom into an idea. Babylon is a thread that runs from Genesis 11 all the way throughout the Bible, and you see that there is a spirit of Babylon that is still operating even in the book of Revelation and the the end of the world as we know it. And the spirit of Babylon lulls God's people. It calls and seduces God's people with wealth and sexuality lulling them to sleep and inviting them to make their lives around this this self-exaltation that is Babylon. And so here again, we see that these people are living in literal Babylon, but they're coming into contact with the spirit of Babylon that runs through the whole of the Bible, and they're feeling the pressure of it. The pressure, pressure of a pluralistic society that's luring people with wealth and sexuality and saying, you can worship however you want at home, but we together as a nation, this is what we affirm and you have to affirm as well. 
you can, you can almost feel that it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of creativity to feel the realities of the day and the moment and the time that we live in, the ways that we bump into the spirit of Babylon still alive and well. You know, we, we live in a time and a place where private worship is fine, but let's make sure that in the public we're all clear of what we bow to and how. Common presuppositions and agreements that hold together a pluralistic society like the one that we live in, three main ones would be that tolerance trumps all. Tolerance is the great good. And when it comes to a person discovering their own personal identity, purpose, and meaning, that that's found through psychology, through a journey internally. That it's not something external to you, that in fact, if you want to discover your identity and the way that you are made to operate in the world, your meaning and your purpose, you have to go inside and you have to follow your heart. And when tolerance plus psychology being the primary means of discovering our identity and purpose and meaning, that leads us to a final conclusion of there is no capital T truth. There's just your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. These are the contours of living in a pluralistic society. And the pressure is real. Now, I was highlighting as we were reading the text how many times it says Nebuchadnezzar had set it up. So the one with all of the power is the one that is setting the standard. He's going, this is what's expected. But then did you also notice that awkward thing about the prefects, governors, counselors, and all the leaders of the province? You get it in one verse, and then in the very next verse, that same long list is stated again. Why is the author hitting us with all this repetition on the front end? He's helping you feel the pressure building. It's as if he's saying, everyone who's anyone gets this. Certainly you understand, don't you? I remember being invited to speak in an event at Rice University years ago. It was intended to be a dialogue or a debate. There was going to be a, a Muslim surgeon and me and a moderator. We're going to talk about Christianity and Islam and science and how they interact. And I remember I was sitting in this little kind of green room with the moderator and this other gentleman that was going to be on the podium with me. And one of them made the comment, you know, isn't, aren't we just grateful that at least we're beyond that point of, of any of us actually believing that we have truth or believing that there's a literal heaven or hell or a divine judgment? At least we've all graduated beyond that. And they both started laughing. And I was sitting there very uncomfortably not laughing. <laughs> and it's in that moment, right, where you feel the pressure of like, what am I going to say in this space? Yeah, we've all got our own private view, but we've got this thing that we bow to together of a culture of, of tolerance and really meaning is found inside, and it's just your truth and my truth and his truth and her truth. And in that moment, I had to do the somewhat awkward, I hope gracious, but honest. <clears throat> um, so that's, it's funny that you should mention that because I'm one of those people. And I haven't progressed beyond believing what the founders of my faith believe. And in fact, I think the founders of both of our faith would probably be offended if we stood up there and pretended that what we believe doesn't crisscross each other's path. But I think maybe we could do that respectfully. It got real quiet. <laughs> I think they're going, how did this guy get the invitation to this thing? Um, you see, there's this reality that we live in a time and a place where the pressure is building. And we feel it in different ways. Sometimes acutely, sometimes just as kind of the air that we breathe. 
But everyone who's anyone understands. Don't you get it? It's kind of like watching the films that are being produced by Hollywood or watching the nightly sitcom where there's that, that one born-again Christian that's like the butt of the joke. Oh, yeah, they believe that you have to believe in Jesus to go to heaven and that there's a real hell. Look at that one. And the imbibed message, the pressure is, you're a joke. You don't really believe that stuff, do you? Like, like maybe you pray in secret, but you don't really believe it. You don't believe like it holds sway over people's lives and that it matters how we carry these convictions and that Jesus actually is reigning bodily on a throne today. You don't really believe that. That pressure in a pluralistic society is always kind of hovering in the air. And the, the question is, how are we to respond It's interesting, in verses 8 through 15, we see that just the initial step of of resolution, of standing out against the norm, brings with it increased pressure. It just builds quickly. It says, therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They go on to say that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow, O king, when the song plays. And then in verse 13, it says, then Nebuchadnezzar in Furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, when the music plays, fall down and worship, and everything will be well and good. But if you don't, you will immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? You see, their initial response to the pressure of just sticking their neck out about that far. What happens is accusations and anger. Accusations and anger is the response where you start to feel, oh, this pluralistic pressure is real on these men. That the Chaldeans make fierce accusations. I was talking with a a friend recently that was on a business trip with some friends and they were all going to the strip club and he said, you know, I'm not... I'm going to bow out on this one, guys. I'm just going to go back to the room and call it a night. And the immediate response was, oh, so you think you're better than us? You judging us? No, no, I'm not making a judgment call. I'm just saying I'm I'm going to... I'm not comfortable going to that spot. And the realization that these, these little moments where we feel the spirit of Babylon, wealth and sexuality inviting us, lulling us to sleep, saying, just come and bow down and recognize that ultimately no one's got a corner on truth and we're all just in this together. In that space where on any one of those fronts we stick our neck out, immediately we can feel the the accusation bubbling. And accusation really quickly, if we don't capitulate, can and does turn to anger. We're aware of this, are we not? That nonconformity is a threat. Nonconformity is a threat to the way that things are, the status quo, and ultimately to the spirit of Babylon itself. And so, nonconformity to the spirit of Babylon calls out the anger. Nothing like nonconformity reveals the intolerance of tolerance. You follow me? Tolerance reigns supreme, but if you step outside of this stream, it is incredibly intolerant. You you run the risk of being canceled or being called a hateful bigot. And the invitation, the the challenge is, what does it mean to be distinctly, robustly Christian? What does it mean to be the covenant people of God 
in that context. To not dig into the spirit of Babylon and respond with the same tools of Babylon and going, well, I'll show you who's going to get canceled and who's really going to be angry and who's really going to be intolerant. That's not the invitation. But the invitation is to say, what does it look like to be a person, a man or a woman, that navigates the pressures of a pluralistic society? And the response that we see from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is pointed, beautiful, compelling, convicting. I've been praying for you, praying that this response would begin to shape who you are. And the response is this, do not conform. Do not capitulate to the pressures of the moment, the social headwinds and the internal story that you tell yourself of the ways that you're going to be relegated or mistreated or looked down upon. Listen, we're going to, we're going to pay attention to this text and ask God that by his grace he would help us to be faithful, bold exiles that in the midst of the headwinds do not conform. Let's see what this meant for them in verses 16 to 18. It says this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, and they said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These men are bold in the face of this pressure. Bold. Do you feel the monotony of this ongoing pressure? Chapter 3, it feels like, oh yeah, this seems familiar because we felt that in chapter 2 and we felt it in chapter 1. It's almost monotonous in the way that there is constant tension and pressure for the exile. I think this is intentional because we need to recognize that as exiles, it's not just like one grand moment where we stand for truth. It's actually an ongoing monotonous reality of persevering and holding to the truths of a distant land while being separated from it. It's constant. It's monotonous. But it's not just monotonous. It's intensifying. In chapter one, these men stood before the chief eunuch on issues of their diet. Now they're standing before the king on issues of their worship. It is intensifying. Each step is one that is bolstering them and preparing them for the next. And in this moment, they continue to resist conforming, and they do it in two distinct ways. I want you to see both of them because I think both are important, and we see this thematically throughout Daniel. The first is that they do not conform to pluralistic pressure, and they do that innocently. Innocently, pure-heartedly, respectfully. I might even say politely. Once again, as we've seen previously, they don't throw a fit. They don't start a fight. They don't make a counterattack against Nebuchadnezzar. They just say, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we we don't have to offer an answer on this front. I mean, oh, the boldness akin to Jesus standing before Pilate when his life was on the line and going, you don't have authority over me. You can feel the boldness and the strength even while they are so polite and respectful. These are men who have read the letter written by Jeremiah 
that is preserved for us in chapter 29. Jeremiah actually, the prophet, wrote a letter to the initial wave of exiles that were taken to Babylon. They would have read these words from Jeremiah in chapter 29, verses 4 through 7. And they say this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles that I sent into Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare." These are men who have read and believed those words. So they're polite to Nebuchadnezzar. They're not starting a fight. They're wearing Babylonian clothes. They have government jobs. They are seeking the welfare of the city. And they're saying gently and respectfully, we don't have to offer an answer on this, Nebuchadnezzar. They are as it were, like the velvet hammer. I had this professor in seminary that was called the velvet hammer. He was this old, white-headed, deep kind of wrinkles, and he was soft-spoken and incredibly gentle. But you'd sit in his lectures, and he carried the truth with such conviction that he could whisper a statement that would just cause you to be like, ugh, oh, oh. We go, oh, the velvet hammer is at it again, you know? Like the whisperings of a grandpa that just dismantle you. And then when you wrote a paper, his, his feedback on your paper would often do the same sort of thing because he was just brilliant and he carried his convictions so deeply and all of a sudden you're like, I got to go back to the drawing board. I got to start over. But part of his gravitas, part of his authority was his gentleness. He wasn't trying to prove a point. He just knew what was true. And here stand these men, innocent and pure-hearted, going, we're not scrambling to defend ourselves or to prove a point. It's just true. You see, the first thing is, they're like the velvet hammer, innocent, gentle, yet firm in their conviction. And the second thing is that they resist this pressure innocently, but they also do it fearlessly. By the conclusion, you know, they're saying... uh, we don't have to answer you, O Pilate, or pardon me, O King. And by the conclusion, they say, our God is able to deliver us, and he will deliver us, and even if he doesn't deliver us. That combination shows such bold, fearless faith. These men haven't just read the letter from Jeremiah. They've also read the prophet Isaiah, who in chapter 43 said this, But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you in the past tense. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you are not going to be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. These men have read these words. They know that God is their redeemer and their rescuer. And even while Nebuchadnezzar's men are stoking the flames of the fiery furnace, they're going, we know the God who delivers from the fires. They were part of Daniel's prayer team in the last chapter that their lives were on death row being threatened to be torn limb from limb, but they went and prayed with Daniel and God revealed the mysteries of Nebuchadnezzar's heart to Daniel and God delivered them. They go, 
We've seen the scriptures, we've seen our past, and what we know is this, we are not scared. You see, when we begin to understand the character of God, a fearlessness begins to bubble up, a fearlessness that's rooted in the character of God, not the activity of God. That's why they could say, and he's able to deliver us, he will deliver us, but even if not, I want to see the video replay. I want to watch the look on Nebuchadnezzar's face. When these men look at him and go, yeah, we understand everybody who's anybody gets it. And we're not trying to prove a point. But listen, we're not scared of you. And even if God doesn't deliver, we're still not going to bow down. Have you gotten to the even if not in your faith with God? Is he still a means to your end? Like, I'll I'll worship you as long as you deliver the spouse or the baby or the family or the job or the healing from the disease. But if you don't, I'm going to stomp my feet and I'm going to declare that you must not be who I thought you were. You see, part of the power of these exiles, the reason they can stand against the spirit of the age is because they've come to trust the character of God himself, not just what he does, but who he is. And what they're saying is, he doesn't have to do anything. He's already done it. He is the good and trustworthy God, and I'm in his hands. What they knew is that if if he delivers us from the fire, he's going to get glory and fame. And if we get burned up in the fire, our story is going to bolster the hearts of the suffering for generations. Either way, we're in his hands, and that's all that matters. You see, the invitation if we're going to be exiles operating under the pressures of a pluralistic society, is to not conform, and to not conform in a way that is innocent and fearless. Which raises one final question. How do we become those sorts of people? Do you feel it? Do you feel the the temptation towards cowardice, towards drawing back, towards going, I'm just going to play my... I'm going to play my cards real close to the chest so that I don't have to take the arrows, the accusations, and the anger. I'm just going to kind of ride under the radar, and if I never talk about Jesus publicly, that's fine. He knows how I feel about him. How does that get transformed into this? And the last reality that emerges in this text is that they know God is a deliverer. They know that God is a deliverer. They've seen it past tense and they're anticipating it future and he shows up in power in verses 19 through following. I won't read all of the verses that are going to be on the screen for us, but let me just just show you where the rest of this story goes. In verse 19 it says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. The expression of his face was changed. He's contorted with anger because their nonconformity is revealing the fact that in fact his word is not final. He is not the arbiter of truth. There is a capital T truth that he's bumping into beyond himself, and it makes him mad. And so in the following verses, he tells them to heat the furnace up seven times hotter. And they, with haste, grab Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego so quickly that when they're thrown into the fire, the very men that throw them into the fire drop dead from the overwhelming heat of the furnace. And then in that moment, as the men are in the fire, Nebuchadnezzar leans in in verse 24, and it says he was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he declared to his counselors, did not we cast three men bound into the fire? They said, true, O king. And he said, but I see four men, and they're unbound, and they're walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. 
And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar quickly calls the men out, and as they step back out, the text tells us that there was no hint of the effect of fire. They weren't singed. There was no smell of smoke on them. Some of the governors and the prefects that had earlier been bowing down with everyone else see it, and it's undeniable and profound and powerful that their God has delivered. And at the conclusion, we see that though Nebuchadnezzar yet again has drawn near to the power of God, he makes... He makes a decree with his mouth that shows that truly his heart still is unchanged, even if he has recognized God's power. In verse 29, he says, therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's interesting that the, the monotony for the faithful exile is not just of the pressure and the challenge, but also of the promotion, that where they remain faithful, God continues to bless and tend to them. And here they are yet again promoted. You see, God delivers beautifully in these verses in a way that no one can deny, even that everyone who's anyone that's been bowing down to the spirit of Babylon. And in Nebuchadnezzar, we, we receive a strong warning that it's possible to be really close to the power of God time and time again, yet to have your heart remain cold and hard. That we see this throughout the story with Nebuchadnezzar. And I would just say that as you draw near to the truth of God, it's not just being able to recognize it and identify it, but to submit to it. And in all of his power and pride, he was unwilling and stays full of anger and rage, even if now it's in the name of this God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Well, it's this text, it's this conclusion that shows us how, in fact, we can be the sort of people that do not conform. We have to be a people alongside of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that, that put our, the anchor of our trust into our God as deliverer. Did you hear it? Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't even know what to call the fourth person in the fire. He says, it looks like the son of the gods. And then later in the text, he actually calls it the angel of God. And ultimately, that's the only commentary we get on the scripture about who this person is. It's commentary from a, a pagan worshiping king that doesn't know the living God. So we don't get divine commentary on, on who is actually in the fire, whether it's an angel or a theophany, a, a, a pre-incarnate Jesus that has come before his birth, but has come to reveal himself. We don't know who it is, but what we do know is this. It is the spirit of Emmanuel that rescues these three. Emmanuel means God with us, and what we see is this. They are not spared the flames, but God meets them in the flames. This is the way our God delivers, that in the midst of the the trial itself, he doesn't just call us up out of it. He doesn't have us float over it. He and his kindness and his power and his grace meets us right in the middle of it. And it says we begin to revel in that and understand the nature of the character of our God that, that steel begins to find its way into our spine. Because we start to, we look at Jesus, the true Emmanuel that stepped into this world, into the hot fiery realities of temptation and struggle, of wealth and sexuality, of power and self-exaltation, and he doesn't participate in any of it. He stays unstained from all of it, yet he ends up being ripped apart by it on the cross of Calvary, destroyed 
as it were, the fire consumed him. But three days later, in his resurrection, power and glory, and then ascending to the right hand of the Father, his word over you and me is stunning. He's saying to you, right now, in his resurrected authority on the throne, you will never be alone. I see the fire that you're praying about, that you're considering. And even if not, even if it doesn't abate, even if it doesn't go away, even if it's the end of you, I'll be with you in the middle of it. And listen, you will be delivered from the fires of judgment without a hint, without being singed in the least. You have a God that has fought for you in that way, who loves you in that way. And what he's saying is, are you going to be ashamed of me in this moment? Though you're far from me right now, though you live in a land distant from me, do not be ashamed. I am alive and well, and I've gone to death and back to rescue and redeem you. Drop your anchor into the truth of my deliverance, and do not be afraid. Be Christian. Be bold. Don't conform. Be Christian in your home and in public. Don't hedge. Don't hide. Don't cower. Don't conform. Jesus proclaimed to his disciples, those that, those that are embarrassed by me and won't stand for me, I'm going to say, I don't even know you. He says, but those who stand for me, I will defend them. I will stand before them. I will fight for them. That Jesus is inviting us into this relationship with him that we so understand his love and his character that come what may, we will say we will not bend to the pressure of the moment in which we live. Brothers and sisters, do not conform to the pressures of living in a pluralistic society. Our God is a deliverer. Let me pray for us.